Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use a blue pew Bible that's under your chair or the chair in front of you. You'll find that on page 822. We'll be doing a lot of flipping together today and in the next couple weeks. So my encouragement to you would, have, would be to have your Bible open and ready with you. But as you turn to Matthew 16, there are two things that I want to bring up by way of introduction. First, today, as you are already aware, we're entering into a series on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Uh, Lord willing, we'll spend about six weeks in this series, including today, as we study what the scriptures teach about the church. However, coming out of Advent, which is usually a theological series on Christ, and into another series is abnormal for us at Redeemer. Not abnormal because it's unfaithful or unbiblical or wrong, because teaching sound doctrine is what the pastors seek to do here, and that includes the whole counsel of God and what it teaches about a variety of theological topics. And it is good for us to stop and consider these topics as a church together, but it is abnormal on a Sunday morning because our regular diet, as it should be, is what's called expositional preaching. That is, we take a book of the Bible and we walk through that book of the Bible. We go line by line, verse by verse, passage by passage, and whatever the point of the text is, that is the point of the sermon for us. That is what we apply to our lives as God's word would intend it. That's what we expect here, which gives way for the second thing. Scripture is our authority. We believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the word of God. God himself has given us the scriptures as his source of self-revelation, and in the scriptures, we also find how God created his church and how God expects his church to live in this world until her head returns, Christ. The scriptures, therefore, should form our ecclesiology, It is the scriptures that teach us what we ought to believe about the church and how we ought to live as the church. But why a series on ecclesiology right now? Well, the short answer is that we need it. We need to look at what the scriptures teach about the church. Entering into a new year together, Amidst a variety of changes, a variety of unsettling circumstances, a variety of difficulties, God's word will guide us. And Lord willing, after this series, we together will have a clearer vision, a better understanding of what it is that God has called our local church to be, who we are together as one body, and how we ought to live together as one body. So today we're going to answer the question, what is the church? And next week we'll do the same. What is baptism? And the following, what is church membership and church discipline? Then what is the Lord's Supper? Then who leads the church? And then finally, why is the church? Why does it exist? What's its purpose? You could say its mission. And Lord willing, with that, that will propel us into this year with one mind, working toward one goal as one body together. With that, let's read our text this morning. 
and then we'll start answering our question. What is the church? Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And when they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three overarching points, if you're taking notes today, this is where we're headed. I'll give them all to you up front, okay? Point number one, what is the church? We're going to define some common terms. Point number two, the foundation of the church. How did it start? Who started it? How does it grow? And the third, who is the church? That is, who makes up the church? Is it a, a group of individuals or an individual group or a corporate entity? We'll find out. But starting our time, what is the church? Now, I hate to burst anybody's bubble this quickly, but the church is not a building. It is very common in our day and age to hear the word church and immediately think of a building. Maybe you think of a brick building down the street with a steeple, maybe a bell, or maybe nowadays... When you hear the word church, you think of a big auditorium. It really means gathering or assembly. And when the New Testament uses the word ecclesia, it's never referring to a building. The word ecclesia is always referring to a gathering or assembly of people. It's used 114 times in the New Testament, and 109 of those times, it refers to an assembly of Christians. Five times. It's used to refer to a general gathering of people. And I want to show you these. Turn over to Acts 7, verse 38. Acts 7, verse 38 says this. This is the one who was in the congregation. That's the word ecclesia. Stephen's actually speaking about Israel's history with Moses in the wilderness. Another use in this general sense is Acts 19. Flip over to 19, verse 32 says this, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. That is the assembly that was riding in Ephesus. Later, verse 39, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Again, that's general. Verse 41, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. It's a general assembly. It's not an assembly of Christians. Last use this way is actually in Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 12. You can flip there. Chapter 2, verse 12 says this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is a general 
congregation. It's used in the Old Testament. Though ecclesia is the Greek word that is used in these places, it does not refer to the church. But the other 109 times it's used, it does. And the large majority of uses refer to a specific localized gathering of Christians, while the others refer to what historically has been labeled the church Catholic or universal gathering of Christians. Now, let me give you an example of a local use, an in-between, and a universal use as we continue answering some questions. Turn with me to Romans 16, verse 1. Romans 16, verse 1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centre. That's a local church at Centre. It's a very obvious use. But a few verses later, in in verse 3 through 4, Paul says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. You see how it's speaking above the local church? He says all the churches. Paul is referencing a larger group of localized churches that have benefited from Prisca and Aquila's ministry. But his use of the word here all puts it in the universal category because all of these churches filled with all of their believing Gentiles have benefited. And note this, these churches are visible. Though Paul is speaking of them as a whole, a universal group. It's comprised of a local, visible assemblies. And then lastly, a clear reference to universal church in the New Testament. Ephesians 5, if you want to turn there with me. Ephesians 5, verse 23. Paul writes, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything. To their husbands. Christ, as we know from our brother EJ, thank you, brother, last week, Christ is preeminent over all things. He is the head over all things to the church, which is his body, and he is its savior. And in verse 25, right there, Jesus didn't just love and lay his life down for a local church in particular. No, Jesus, as the only head of one church, laid his life down for the church, his church universal church, everyone who is a part of his ecclesia. You can turn back to Matthew 16. Seeing how the New Testament uses ecclesia in these ways, theologians dating back to the Reformation have sought to define the church by using three categories. Each category expresses a different aspect of the church as the New Testament defines it. These categories help us like lenses. We don't see the entire church, but as we adjust these lenses, everything slowly comes into view, and as best we can, we can see Christ's church. These are the three categories. Universal, local, visible, invisible, true, false. First, the church is universal and local. This is how the New Testament describes it. I will largely, to be honest, be discussing the church universal in our time this morning. When we speak of the church, this is what we're talking about. 
because it is for the church, Christ's church, every true member of Christ's body that Christ has died and risen. Christ has baptized his people by his spirit, cleansed us spiritually from our sin, and has reconciled us to God and one another, both now and forever. His church universal. Every saint who's been purchased by the blood of Christ throughout all time. The scriptures never use the word universal, catholicon. It's never mentioned in the New Testament. It is mentioned in the creeds of church history to bring definition, but it is not a Bible word, like the word trinity is not a Bible word. But we would affirm with church history that our understanding of the trinity is derivative of the Bible's teaching on the one triune God. The same is true for universal. The church universal is derivative from what the New Testament teaches us about localized church gatherings and this grander picture, this above local churches picture like we saw in Ephesians 5 of Christ saving and being the head of his entire church. So when theologians say a text makes mention of the universal church, it's either because multiple local churches are in mind, not one single church, or the grander picture of the church is in mind. It's not one specific localized church, but the church as a whole. This, we say, is universal. On the other hand, and in the majority, the New Testament teaches about the local ecclesia, localized gatherings of believers who've covenanted together in places in time. Mark Dever, in his comments on the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed on universal, big word, he says, while every true local church is a part of this universal church and is an entire church itself, no local church can be said to constitute the entire universal church. This is true. This is why we believe that there are other faithful local churches out there because we aren't the only Christians. But we cannot see the universal here. We are one local church among many within the one universal church. And this is how the New Testament uses this language. Ecclesia, a majority of the time referring to a gathering of Christians together in a specific place and time, hence the categories universal, local. The second category, closely related. The church is invisible and the church is visible. Summarizing the reformers, theologian Wayne Grudem says this, really simple. The invisible church is the church as God sees it. The visible church is the church as Christians see it. The invisible church is the, hear me, pure ecclesia of all the redeemed. All those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life since the foundation of the world. The visible church is a mixed ecclesia of men and women who have professed faith in Christ and display the fruits of obedience, but may or may not genuinely be Christians. You even see in a gathering like ours, RBC, we look around and we see the, the members of our visible local church and Others gathered with us, but we really can't know for certain if every member of RBC is a member of the invisible 
church. In the same way that there may be people who are here who are a part of the invisible church, but not this visible church. The bottom line is we don't know who is and who isn't a part of the invisible church. We won't know until heaven. Only the Lord knows. But within visible churches, although we aren't walking around with numbers tatted on our foreheads or wrists to know who belongs to Jesus, Jesus gave his local churches the ordinances, which function as visible boundaries that we exercise as a church to determine as faithfully as we can whether or not someone is regenerate. Upon a profession of faith, we baptize someone, bringing them into membership in a visible body of Christ, and then we as members of this visible body regularly take the Lord's Supper together. And the third category, true and false. But we will discuss that next week. Beginning next week, we'll be leaning heavily into speaking of the local, visible gathering of Christians. But for the rest of our time today, we're going to be leaning heavily on capital T, the church, meaning the church universal, the church that is invisible to us. Point number two, the foundation of the church. In Ephesians 5.23, we saw earlier, the church is Jesus' body, and he himself is her savior. Jesus only ever, ex- let me hear me when I say this, Jesus only ever explicitly mentions this thing called the church, the ecclesia, two times. Ecclesia, as I mentioned earlier, is, a, is best translated gathering or assembly. And Jesus' first mention is in our text here. Matthew 16, verse 18, directed toward Simon Peter. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. We'll dive into this in a minute. The second occasion is chapter 18. Flip over with me to chapter 18, verse 15 through 19. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus is talking to his disciples about the ecclesia. And he's actually giving them instruction on church discipline. What do you do in your ecclesia, your church, when a person who's claimed to be a brother is unrepentant of a certain sin? And we'll look at that in more depth in a few weeks. But for today, I say these are Jesus' only explicit references to the church because Jesus does talk about his ecclesia implicitly when he refers to his people as those whom he loves. You don't have to flip there, but Mark 3.35, he says his people are people who do God's will, that are in his family. Matthew 5, verse 13 through 14, he tells his people, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. John 6, verse 37, those who his father has given him will come to him. These are all references to his people, his ecclesia, 
though the word is not explicitly used. But we must start here in Matthew 16 as we seek to understand the church because in Matthew 16, Jesus informs us of the foundation of his church. What is it? Himself. Jesus is the foundation. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been in the thick of ministry. Jesus has been doing a variety of miracles and good works, things that these people had never seen before, and it's sparked much interest in who he was. He had developed quite the following as crowds flocked to him to receive some sign from him or hear some teaching, because he was healing people of ailments and proclaiming forgiveness of their sins. Jesus has been teaching some controversial things as one who has authority. He's been teaching what the kingdom of of God is and that it's coming. And most controversial of all, he's been teaching who would inherit the kingdom of God and how. It would be sinners who repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. But this doesn't surprise us. Or it shouldn't. Remember back at the beginning of our Advent series, we looked at what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah. Remember, the messianic expectation was that Christ would be the king of Israel, that he would deliver Israel, would restore Israel. But Jesus Christ, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, reveals that God's purposes are greater. God's eternal kingdom was breaking into the already as Jesus was born, as he lived, as he died, and as he rose from the dead, inaugurating this new kingdom right now. Not yet realized fully, but growing as a mustard seed grows, the smallest of the seeds, he says, growing to become the largest tree in the garden, the kingdom of God, beginning with Israel, and then through Israel, Extending to the ends of the earth, all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues would benefit from this Messiah, this Christ. But let's see it. Turn back to Matthew 1. It's verse 16. Matthew is very clear in his gospel that Jesus is the Christ because Jesus fulfills all the necessary requirements to be the Christ. Matthew 1, 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. At this point, at the beginning of his gospel, Matthew gives a lineage of Jesus, beginning with Abraham, the patriarch of Israel. And then in verse 16, claims that Jesus is the Christ. Go to Matthew 3, verse 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying he is fulfilling all righteousness. Go to Matthew 4, verse 17. He's in the wilderness. But after he comes out, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Down to verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God that involves keeping in step with repentance of sins. Go to Matthew 5, verse 17. What does Jesus say? He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is claiming here that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says he fulfills all the law and the prophets, all that Israel could not do. Jesus is saying here that he came to do it. He is true Israel, the son of God. He claims that you must be righteous to enter the kingdom after already confirming that he came to fulfill all righteousness. Look at Matthew 8, verse 10 through 12. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, he's he's speaking to a Greek centurion, about a Greek centurion. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is speaking about a Greek centurion, and he says it is people like him, people of faith, who will recline with the patriarchs of Israel in the kingdom of heaven. Not the sons of the kingdom here, which the Pharisees would have heard as themselves, the people of Israel. Go to Matthew 9, verse 11 through 13. Jesus again. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus says he came to fulfill all righteousness, and he says it is the righteous who inherit the kingdom. And here he says he came to call sinners. That is, call them to himself. Matthew 11, last one before we go back to 16. Matthew 11, verse 25 to 27, says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Catch this. Jesus reveals the Father. And no one truly knows the Son, Jesus, apart from the Father. Which brings us back to Matthew 16. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds in faith, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response to Peter is significant. This points out that it isn't an educated guess. This isn't something that Peter conjured up from within himself. Peter's confession was revealed to him by the Father, the Lord God, the creator of heavens and the earth. God the Father revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ. And Jesus says, You are Peter, Petros, And on this Petra, I will build my ecclesia, my assembly. It is on Peter's apostolic message, his proclamation of the gospel, 
that Jesus says he will build his church. And notice what he says to Peter. He, he says to you, singular, Peter, I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, Redeemer, this is one of those places where it's really important that we let Scripture interpret Scripture. We should let Scripture interpret itself. It does it. And here I want to point out a terrible error from church history with a question. Who has the keys? Is it Peter? The Roman Catholic Church would say it was Peter and the apostles who were given the keys. They have absolute authority in this regard to bind and loose. But the apostles died, so who has the authority now? Well, the Roman Catholic Church believes in what's called apostolic succession. This authority succeeds these apostles through an apostolic line and now resides in the Pope and the priests of the Catholic Church. The Pope being the head of the church with all the authority to bind and loose. But Redeemer, with the Reformers, we reject this. First, because of Ephesians 5.23 that we saw. Christ is the head of his body. Christ is the head with all authority. But as we saw in Matthew 18... Jesus does delegate his authority. And who does he delegate it to? Who has the keys? The church. The church exercises the keys. The church has been given the authority by Christ to bind and loose. Now, as Baptists, we would even disagree with the Reformers on who exercises these keys within the church because we would hold that it is the local gathering of Christians as a whole that exercise the keys. We've all been made a royal priesthood. Christ is the head of each of us individually and all of us corporately together. Not one individual or a small group of individual leaders in particular that represent the whole, but the whole local assembly of Christians does this. But for today, as you can see, the way you interpret these passages has implications for how a local church is structured. Its leadership, how it exercises authority, all of which we'll talk about in the coming weeks, Lord willing. But back to our main purposes of looking at Matthew 16. Look at verse 18. The word says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What have we learned from the word of God, as we've seen Jesus speaking about a people that belong to him throughout all of Matthew's gospel up to this point when he gives them a name, the ecclesia. Three truths. One, Jesus builds his church. Meaning our Lord is building a people for himself, and he's doing so through the proclamation of his word alone, the gospel that alone can save sinners and save them to the uttermost. The gospel that Jesus is the Christ and that he lived the perfect life of obedience to God that no man from creation, from the first man to the last, could ever do or will ever be able to do. He laid his life down for many, dying on the cross to accomplish the salvation of all who would repent of their sins and turn to him in faith. Then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. 
His sacrifice was pleasing to God. And God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is now gathering a people to himself. He's gathering his church by his grace alone, as we saw with Peter, through faith alone and Christ alone, all pointed to the glory of God alone. If you've never heard this gospel, please talk to someone that you've seen up here. Talk to me after the service or a person you came with. This is the good news, and we would love to share with you how Jesus will change your life if you turn to him in faith. And as an encouragement for us here at RBC, trust the Lord for growth. Because the Lord Jesus builds his church. And pray and ask him to build it here in the Vent Hill area. We want to see it. We want to be involved in it. We want to be a part of it. We want him to use us here, right? So start praying for it. And while you're praying, ask the Lord how we together and individually might play a role in his building project. Number two, the church belongs to Jesus. It's his He says, I'll build my church. It's Jesus' blood that purchases our forgiveness. It is Jesus who calls his people out of darkness into light. The church belongs to Jesus. So, Redeemer, if you claim to belong to Jesus, we ought to be about obeying our Lord, our head. As EJ pointed out last week, where the head goes, the body follows. What Christ commands, we obey. His purposes should be our purposes. He builds his church, us, and now what we do depends on what he tells us we ought to do, and he's told us what we ought to do in his word. So a good question for us. Are we a people together committed to God's word? Do we go to his word to determine what we ought to do in faith and practice? Do we go to his word when we pick music to sing? When we pray corporately, when we fellowship together, when we determine what ministries to get involved in and what ministers to support? I would say this is what we've done, and I praise God for it. Praise God. But we need to keep doing it. Even if sometimes we look in the word and see we're off course Because it is God's grace that would allow us to see it and correct it. Our church belongs to Jesus. We live in accordance with his word. Last truth for this section. Notice that in Christ building his ecclesia, his assembly, by its very nature, it's a gathering of people. The church is an assembly of Christ's people, Christians. At its very foundation, the church's identity is to be an assembly, a gathering of people who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. He does not save an individual to leave them to do life on their own like an island, but saves them and has connected them as a member of his body. He's intended for this to manifest itself in their connecting as a member to his visible body. The Lord's designed his church to be an assembling people. And as an assembly, the church is commanded to assemble. It's heavily in that the Christian life is a private matter. It's between me and Jesus. Obedience to Christ is between me and Jesus. But Redeemer, the Christian life, one with Christ as the head, is a life connected to the body. It's a corporate life. We saw that in our scripture reading this morning. 
Christian read it, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. You, Paul says, Corinthian church, you, Corinthian church, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The end is not the individual. The end is the body. So if you profess to be a Christian, a member of Christ's invisible, universal body, but you aren't connected to a visible local body, the application for you is to find a visible body and join as a member. This is what we've been called to do as an ecclesia, to gather with other Christians. But thinking again about the church, a necessary question to answer is who makes up the body of Christ, which leads us to our last point. Who is the church? Namely, who makes it up? Who makes up the church universal? Is it a group of individuals or an individual group, or is it a corporate entity? Turn with me to Romans 3. I want you to see in these next few passages of Scripture that Christ's universal church, Romans 3, his ecclesia is made up of all God's elect from the first man to the last. Through faith, the children of promise in the Old Testament and the saints in the New Testament together comprise the one church of Christ. Let's walk through Romans 3, verse 21 through 30 together. Let's follow along. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Remember, the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God. What is this righteousness Paul's talking about? Next verse, 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God that is required, as we saw in Matthew 5, to enter the kingdom of God comes by faith in Jesus. What does he mean by all here? He means every person since Adam who will ever exist, the first man to the last. Look at the next verse. For there is no distinction, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, you can input the the noun there, all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So Caleb, you're saying that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was received by faith from people in the Old Testament? Yes. Let's keep reading. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Meaning, he had forborne with the sins of mankind. All of mankind, the Jews and the Gentiles alike, all people. Why is this? Next verse, 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Remember, Jesus builds his church. He saves a people for himself. He is just and the justifier of all those who have faith. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. No reason to boast. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Notice there's no boasting here. There's no boasting. Because God's people, Israel in the Old Testament, the Gentiles in the New, 
We did nothing to deserve this righteousness, but we receive this righteousness by faith. We receive inclusion into God's kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised, the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, through faith. Flip over to Romans 9, verses 6 through 11. We're going to do this again. Again, the children of promise in the Old Testament and the saints of the New Testament together comprise the church of Christ. Look at verse 6, chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul is making a distinction here, and he he defines it in the next verse. Look at the next verse, verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because their offspring, his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That means that is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Church, this means that not all Israel according to the flesh, ethnic Israel, that are counted as offspring. But it is the children of promise who are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Who is that? The father. The father who revealed Christ to Peter. The children of promise are counted as offspring, God's children. Paul says it here, but Jesus said it first. Flip over to John chapter 8, verse 34 through 41, really quickly. Thirty-four. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Am I in the right place? Sorry, guys. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do not and you do what you've heard from your father. These Pharisees are the offspring of Abraham, but they're rejecting Jesus. And therefore Jesus says, they aren't really offspring of Abraham, who was justified by faith. We got one more flip. Hebrews 11. Connecting with Abraham, just being justified by faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Look down to verse 13. These all died. These meaning Abel, Abraham, Jacob, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 39 and 40. And all these, again, all the people of faith, though commended through their faith, 
did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. These men and women in the hall of faith, as it's called, were saved by faith because they believed God's promise as it was revealed to them. God promised something to each of them. And they had faith in their God to accomplish that promise that he made. They didn't know it would ultimately happen through God becoming a man Jesus Christ, who would endure the cross and die for our sins, yet rise and be exalted to the right hand of God. But they did know, and they believed, that God promised a promise. And they looked forward in faith to that promise, and they were saved by the Lord Jesus. Just like we, who are on the other side of history, look backward to God's promises fulfilled in his son, his true Israel, the one he called out of Egypt, who went through the waters to fulfill all righteousness, who was faithful in the wilderness, who obeyed the law perfectly, who paid for the sins of his people and redeemed a people for himself. He is the true prophet, priest, and king, the last Adam, the offspring of Abraham. He is the true Israel, and through him we are all saved into one body. We together are offspring of Abraham, true Israel in and through Christ, one new people, Christ's church. For almost 1,700 years, the church has affirmed this reality, as we should today. The Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, formed in 381 AD, confesses that the church reflects her triune God as she is one, holy, universal, and apostolic. One, because we are individually members of Christ's one new body, his ecclesia. We are unified as one in Jesus Christ, who is our head. Does our local ecclesia reflect this unity? Holy. Because we, the ecclesia, have been declared righteous in Christ. We've been justified by his grace. And we're called as we live on this earth to increasingly reflect Christ's holiness as his church. Does our local ecclesia reflect Christ's holiness? Universal. Because Jesus is Lord of all. Lord over his church throughout space and time. He is the head of his ecclesia as it spans from creation to new creation. Do we live like our local ecclesia belongs to his universal ecclesia? Do we exercise the keys? Do we practice the ordinances as faithfully as we can to ensure that our visible body here represents the invisible body of Christ as faithfully as we can? Apostolic, because we, the church, were founded on Christ's gospel, the one gospel that saves, and are therefore called to take this gospel to all nations. Is our local ecclesia characterized by the great commission of Matthew 28? Do we take that one gospel when we go? 
We affirm this creed with the rest of church history. And we ought to live together like we believe it. Two final truths to close our time. One, the church is the body of Christ. And as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 12, this body consists of many members who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Whether that be from believing in God's promises throughout the Old Testament or looking to the fulfillment of these promises in the Lord Jesus himself, Jesus builds his church. He's created it, is creating it, and will continue to create for himself a body of believers until he returns for his bride, his church, Redeemer. We are the body of Christ. We're his body right here. As we, Christ's ecclesia, have gathered together at 4295 Aiken Drive. The Apostle Paul would encourage us to think with one mind because we have been made into one body. We're not just individual Christians that come hang out in the same place. We're members of this one body as we've covenanted together under Christ's authority, our head. We're one body and we should think this way. So let me ask you, When you think about RBC, how do you think about it? Have you been thinking as an individual among individuals? Or have you been thinking as an individual member of this one united body? The way you think about your relationship to this body impacts the decisions you make with regards to Redeemer. Have you been prioritizing gathering with the body of which you are a member? And by gathering, I mean when we all come together on Sunday mornings. I mean when we commit to do community groups with one another and love one another. I mean the prioritizing of other members of this body for discipleship, Bible study, accountability, prayer. Have you? And then within these gatherings, the way you think about your relationship to this body impacts the conversations you have and the things you do. Have your conversations been for the building up of the one body? Have they been for encouragement? Have your conversations with others about this body and your actions toward others been those that glorify Christ? Our head. Have they been those that maintain the purity of our unity and our witness to an unbelieving world? We must think, we must live, we must act as Christ's one body here, Redeemer. It doesn't happen on accident. We must actively pursue this kind of unity. Are we making an active choice to pursue this kind of unity? Last thing, and it's a mouthful, admittedly. The church is a spatio, sorry, it has. The church has a spatio temporal existence. Big words. We've talked about how the church is comprised of people from all of history, universal. But removing it from the abstract, the church does have a concrete existence. We must not think only in the abstract, but as the church is universal, all believers in all time, we need to think also about the concrete nature of the church, that it physically exists on earth right now. 
by spatiotemporal, a theologian by the name Greg Allison points this out. He defines it this way. The church is assembled as a historical reality, meaning it's located in space, spatio, and time, temporal. It's located in space and time, which brings us back to the New Testament use of ecclesia. Of the 109 times ecclesia is used to refer to an assembly of Christians, the majority refers to a specific localized gatherings, local churches. Allison again says this, by far the most common referent of the New Testament presentation of the church is a spatio-temporal gathering of Christ's followers, a local church. The universal church, at least its living members, is manifested by Christ, its head and the spirit, and manifests itself through Christians associating themselves with one another in local churches. The universal church manifests itself in local churches. Invisible members of the universal church manifest themselves as visible members of local churches. As we saw in Matthew 16, the Lord builds his church. Romans 3, he gathers both Jew and Gentile alike. Hebrews 11, by faith in the gospel. Hebrews 12, his gospel. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He also protects the church for her purity. Ephesians 5, and the means of protection. He's given us his visible local church. Because we don't have eyes to distinguish the wheat from the chaff amongst us. Matthew 13, the means that he gives us are the ordinances. The ordinances make visible what would otherwise be invisible. As a person professes faith in Christ and obeys God's word, they're baptized and visibly brought into membership into our visible local body or another one because the Lord Jesus created a gathering. And the sign of entrance into his gathering is baptism. Baptism, symbolizing our baptism of the Holy Spirit, which reconciles us to God and joins us to his invisible body, which we visibly see when we join a visible local body. Going back to our discussion on Matthew 16 and 18, again, Christ gave his church authority to distinguish who is in and who is out. All because we genuinely believe that the visible, redeemed members of the body of Christ will manifest themselves as visible members of Christ's body, the local church. First through the waters of baptism. Gathered in as a member of that local visible body, then regularly participating at the Lord's table in communion with other visible members of Christ's body as we together remember the gospel, the one gospel that's united us to one and has reconciled us to God and to one another making one new man under the one head, one holy, universal, apostolic church. Openly, unashamedly, remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray.